We are in Luke chapter 1. We're doing a countdown to Christmas. We are reading through the Gospel of Luke each Sunday up until the day we celebrate the first coming of Jesus Christ. The Gospel of Luke is one of the unique Gospels written by a man who truly had his readers in mind when he wrote it. Luke, being a physician at that time, looked at things in a very analytical and methodical manner. And it was his desire to articulate all the different um, activities of not only Jesus Christ, but the disciples that followed Jesus Christ, that one may see a cohesive um, line of events take place through the narrative to allow them to see and to truly understand who Jesus Christ is. He writes specifically to a man named Theophilus, one who loves God, a lover of God is probably more appropriate to give you definition to his name. The culture at that time allowed for those who were wealthy to retain a physician in their staff, in their um, servitude, uh, that would simply tend to the family's well-being and health. And I personally believe Luke was that physician within the household of Theophilus. Theophilus was either near becoming a Christian or had just become a Christian. We don't know if he himself, that is Theophilus, was Jewish or Greek. The name is found in both languages. And so Luke writing this to him, if you pick it up with me in verse 1, Luke says to him, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministered of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may be have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. <clears throat> it was Luke's desire that Theophilus be certain of the historical events that had taken place within his lifetime. Theophilus and Luke are now about 30 years removed from the ascension of Jesus Christ. Just 30 years earlier, Jesus ascended in Acts chapter 1 back to heaven to the right hand of the Father, displaying that he truly was the Messiah in whom they had wished and prayed and predicted for. And Luke now is saying, with everything going on, with the fragmented uh, writings that we have, with the um, oral traditions that we have from eyewitnesses who witnessed these things, even to the manner of the songs that were being written and sung in remembrance of the events of Jesus Christ, and also <clears throat> the things that Luke himself witnessed among his journeys with the apostles. Luke was not one of the twelve himself, but was a companion of the twelve. If you go to the book of Acts, you discover that 
Luke, who also wrote the book of Acts, to the exact same person. It's a two-volume set, Luke and Acts together. When Luke wrote this, he's stating to Theophilus, now everything that Jesus did up until the time he was crucified and uh, rose again, I've written to you in my first letter. Now that Jesus has ascended into heaven, I want you to know and be aware of and be certain of the events that took place after his ascension back into heaven. Now for Luke being a doctor with a scientific mind, to him to even discuss the issue of certainty had to be a very daunting task in and of itself. Certainty is not something that a scientist talks about lightly. And for him to write this, he is saying, I am now going back myself. I am going to look at the fragmentations. I am going to look at the oral traditions. I'm going to interview individuals that are mentioned within them for accuracy of their testimony. And I am going to compile for you that you may be certain. This is a huge statement. Now, if we talk about certainty in Christianity being 2,000 years removed of the historical events, we will be challenged because of the duration of time between the events and today. Though I can make an argument very clearly that the fragments of the New Testament that we have will take me back to the, uh, to the very first century, and I believe we can go all the way back to 62 AD, which is again 30 years removed from the time of Christ. That being said, at the time of Theophilus's life, these things were just 30 years previous, and therefore they could speak with historical certainty concerning the events that had taken place. For example, we discuss history here, um, say in one of our groups, and we're surrounded by people who were all born after the year 2000, and we are speaking about the Vietnam War. An individual who lived during the Vietnam War is going to have a much more definitive mindset concerning the events of the Vietnam War than someone who wasn't born during that time. For example, I could talk about the first Gulf War, and you may be familiar with that. But someone who wasn't born at that time would have only a distant uh, knowledge of that because they themselves did not personally experience that. That is exactly what Luke is trying to bridge here in this gospel. And this is why I chose it for our read up till the day of Christmas, because he not only wrote it as a physician with a methodical, uh, systematic mindset, but he also wrote it for you and I who are not Jewish, for he himself was a Gentile, and therefore he is giving us all the information that we know that we need to know to truly appreciate the birth of Jesus Christ. He's filling in the backstory for us. Not being Jewish, we did not celebrate Passover, we did not celebrate the feasts, we do not have a, a historical uh, uh, I should say connection to the Exodus or God's dealing with his people prior to the coming of Jesus Christ. In fact, before this particular time, uh, before the coming of John the Baptist, there was a 400-year period of silence. And so, long story short, we are looking at Luke because I believe that he gives us everything we need from a very, very, very um, certain perspective. And therefore, you and I 
though we are 2,000 years removed, if Theophilus reading this in his time can be certain of those events, we reading this in our time can be certain of those events. That is what I meant to say. Probably could have just said it like that and saved us 15 minutes. We've made our way far as verse 26. Let's pick it up there. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Last week, we discovered that John the Baptist's birth was being announced to Zechariah as he is in the temple. He responded to the good news that Gabriel had brought him in unbelief and therefore was silenced until the child was born. When we come to verse 25, five months of Elizabeth, that is Zachariah's wife who is carrying John the Baptist, had um, transpired. By the sixth month now of that pregnancy, the angel Gabriel once again is coming to the next recipient of the good news, and that is Mary in a small town called Nazareth in the area of Galilee. For you and I who are removed from Jewish history, let us understand that Galilee was an area that was not considered much of anything during the time of Jesus Christ. Galileans were looked upon uh, with disdain. They were frowned upon. It was a portion of their culture that they were not proud of. They saw them as truly uneducated, blue-collar individuals that in many circles didn't contribute to the welfare of the society in which they were meant to in an intellectual and religious manner. It was a rough crowd. Yeah, these were tough people. And I think it's interesting that Jesus selected his disciples, not from the uh, academic uh, elite of Jerusalem, but from the cities of Galilee more specifically. One of those cities is a small city named Nazareth, population of about 2,000, very small in size compared to the other towns uh, affiliated in the Galilean region. Nazareth is very interesting because it has uh, really no significance in the biblical narrative. We find nothing about it in the Old Testament. It's mentioned very infrequently in the New, only to say that Jesus was raised there. He wasn't born there, but he was raised there by Joseph and Mary. Uh, and yet Nazareth doesn't play any real role biblically, other than the Feelings of those about Nazareth are well recorded in the Bible. You go to John chapter 1, verse 46, I think, and Nathaniel talks about, does anything good come out of Na uh, Nazareth? Uh, it was like, really? You're going to tell me something about Nazareth? This one called the Messiah? Really? Coming out of where? Nazareth? Are you kidding? Now, all eyes were on Bethlehem. In fact, as you get into the Gospels, you realize that those close to Herod who were advising him all knew about the prophecies found in Micah concerning the birth of this great ruler, this great king, in the city of Bethlehem. But he actually 
grew in the city of Nazareth. And we're going to talk about that more and why as we continue on. But here in Nazareth, a virgin who is in a period of betrothal to a man named Joseph is found by Gabriel, Joseph who is of the house of David, and this virgin's name was Mary. Betrothal in the Jewish custom was one of three steps in the marriage process. The first step was an engagement, and that usually happened when the children were quite young, and it happened between the fathers of the two children, and it was an arranged marriage. It's the best way that I could put it, and that way it was settled even before they got into their teens. They knew who they were going to marry. So the little guy could be heading off to kindergarten, and this cute little girl walks in, and he goes to his friends. He goes, hey, guys, look, that's my wife. You know, watch this. Hey, make me a sandwich. Hey, we're not, we're not married yet. You know, we're not married yet. The second portion of the marriage was a betrothal period. It was a one-year period that followed a marriage ceremony. And during this particular time, the couple was by the society, uh, or I should say at the society's um, viewpoint, married. However, though, in that year period of time, the marriage was not physically consummated yet until a further celebration that took place after the one year of the betrothal period had ended. So Mary and Joseph were in this one year period of time of betrothal. And during this period of time, she still is a virgin. She has never been with a man in intimacy uh, up until this point. And so Gabriel comes to her and she, he speaks to her and finds her in verse 27 to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Now, from the very beginning, we know that the Messiah was going to come from the lineage of David. The Old Testament promised that and predicted that. And that is why both Matthew's gospel and um, Luke's gospel retain within them genealogies showing and demonstrating that both through Mary and through Joseph, the lineage returns to David, fulfilling the prophecies that were given concerning the Messiah's heritage. Now, Many have done mathematical calculations to discover what this would be in the sense of probability and the figures were astronomic. But as a result, Luke is making it very clear that Joseph and Mary were both of the house of David. She is still a virgin in this period of betrothal. uh, betrothal. Now, if Joseph were to die during this period of betrothal, she would be considered a widow. And this is why the New Testament later speaks about virgins who have been widowed. It is individuals that have been betrothed to someone. And then during that betrothal period, the husband dies. They are then a widow, but yet still physically in a virgin state. However, though, if for some reason, 
she was to be found unfaithful to her husband during this betrothal period, she could be killed for her unfaithfulness. Stoned. And this is why Joseph needed the reassurance of Gabriel that what was happening to his betrothed wife was something that God was doing. But let us look back into the Old Testament for a moment to realize the prophecies concerning David. In 2 Samuel seven twelve through 13 when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come up from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. When this was written, David was supposing that Nathan the prophet was only speaking concerning of Solomon. But then there's the last line of this prophecy, that the throne of David would last forever. It is that that is capitalized further in Jeremiah when we read in Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land, in the days of Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell in security. <clears throat> and this, name, this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness." So in each case, Luke is giving us this picture. From a physician's point of view, he wants us to know that Mary is a virgin. She has not been touched. If you were a Christian about 12 years ago, you will realize that there was a great controversy in Christianity due to the fact of the Hebrew word that is used for virgin also possibly meaning young maiden and therefore requiring that Mary necessarily wasn't a virgin at the time of conception. That has been thoroughly disapproved, uh, uh, mis- uh, I'm sorry, um, uh, proven wrong. And as a result, we see now that once again, the Bible stands against the criticism of the secular world. There is significant theological reasons why she needed to be a virgin and needed to conceive the coming Messiah in the manner in which she did, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But then Luke also, from a scientific point of view, not only wants to focus on her being a virgin in the miraculous manner in which she conceived, but he also wants us to know that what's happening is fully in line with the tradition of the prophecies of the Old Testament. It's a masterful skill work he has done here. And as a result now, he is giving us two lines of inquiry or two lines of thought to travel upon to truly understand all that is taking place before us. This brings us now to verse 28. And he came, that is, Gabriel came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. She was only probably somewhere between 14 and 16 years of age at this time. 
for this young lady who has now been betrothed to Joseph. And we don't know a lot about Joseph. We know he was a good man. He was a righteous man. We know that Mary and Joseph had children after the birth of Jesus Christ, even though the Roman Catholic Church to this day still refutes that. The Bible tells us clearly that they had children afterwards. In fact, James and Jude, who wrote books of the Bible, were Jesus' half-brothers. I don't know if you know that. Descendants of Joseph, but of course, Jesus' father was God, and so we'll call them half-brothers, because they both came from Mary. But as a result, Joseph is looked very favorably. And other than that, we know that he was a carpenter, another blue-collar worker in which was right by God, and therefore God used him in the manner in which he did. Again, not through the elite, not through the highs of academia in Jerusalem, from, from people common in that time. God brought about this great miracle in this great manner to show himself strong amongst the people. As a young girl, she undoubtedly was wondering of what sort of greeting this was. It's a phrase that Luke uses to describe and to show us that this just did not happen every single day. An angel did not appear to the young ladies every single day in such a way and call one favored and say that the Lord is with you. For in fact, Mary would have been fully aware of the fact that God has now been silent for 400 years since the book of Malachi was given to the nation of Israel. And so what does this mean when she wondered and was greatly troubled and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be? It means that she was hanging on to every single word that the angel was saying. She wanted to ascertain what this meant. Had she done something wrong? Was she in a position of vulnerability before God? What was happening? So she's listening discerningly, deliberately, and with all attention given. But from the very beginning, he approaches her in a very gentle way. Oh Mary, your favored one of God, meaning God has bestowed on you his grace, and he is with you. And yet even hearing those words from an angel undoubtedly troubled her, her, her young little heart. The angel encouraged her in verse 30, if you look there with me. And he said to her, Oh, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Once again, the announcement has been proclaimed She is now confronted with the reality that God has called upon her in such a unique way. The Roman Catholic Church, I I will say, has done more harm to the character of Mary than any organization on earth. She has never been raised to a point of deity, which they have raised her to. She was a simple servant of God, well-loved by God, someone that we should admire and respect. The disciples treated her with all reverence and respect and grace. But yet, 
She is not meant to be worshipped. And though she is, as some translations write, full of grace, that phrase does not mean that she is full of grace and then therefore can depart grace onto others. It's just that God had favor upon her. God looked upon her graciously with favor and selected her specifically for what was about to take place. Precious young gal. Someone to be greatly admired. Jesus held Mary in such reverence that on the day of his crucifixion, one of the very last things that Jesus did was secure his mother's future. He saw as he hung from the cross, Mary standing next to the uh, apostle John, and he commits John to Mary and Mary to John, and history tells us that John then took Mary Jesus being the oldest of the the sons of Mary, it would fall to his responsibility to take care of his um, widowed mother. And while Jesus was on the cross suffering in the great agony and pain in which he did, his tenderness and his love and his compassion for his mom led him to make sure that he fulfilled every point of his personal responsibility, even to the point of committing her into John's hands and John into her hand. And therefore, John became the one responsible for looking after her well-being in her elderly years. History tells us, very interesting, Polycarp writes about this, that John did not start his ministry to the churches as an apostle until after Mary died because he felt his first and foremost responsibility was to take care of Mary because that's what he had committed to do before his Lord and Savior. Again, highly respected. She should be held in reverence, but she is not a co-redeemer. She is not a second way to heaven. She has no ability to save anyone. And after her delivery of Jesus, after she gave birth to the Messiah, it's clear from Scripture that she had other children with Joseph, which are denied today, but is clearly substantiated in the Bible itself. So I say this because I believe that Mary should be someone that we look to because of her response to what it is being said and proclaimed to her. Take a look at with me as we continue on. For this child that you will conceive in your room, you will bear a child. He will be the son of God. He will be a son, I should say. And his name shall be Jesus. Now this is very interesting because if you go back to Isaiah 7.14, it is prophesied 700 years earlier, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. But the angel says Jesus, and this is an issue of Hebrew and Greek together. In the Greek, the word Jesus is translated from the word Joshua, which means Jehovah is salvation. That through Jesus, salvation will be Uh, provided for all mankind. When the Hebrew writer, that is Isaiah, writes in Hebrew and talking of Emmanuel, Emmanuel means God is with us. 
So when you look at Jesus and Emmanuel together, you get the phrase, God is with us, God is salvation. What an accurate term for the person of Jesus Christ, is it not? That he is God. And that through him and only through him is salvation provided for all of us. And again, just like Zechariah and Elizabeth, she does not have to go out and buy a book of baby names. It has been given to her and instructed very clearly that this is what you shall call him. Verse 32. Now this one, he now gives a proclamation of what will transpire through this son. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Spurgeon said that when it says that he shall be great... It means that he shall be the greatest one who ever occupied this particular earth that God has created. He wrote this, He will be great. No one has influenced history more than Jesus, Spurgeon writes. It is, it is not proven that he is great. Conquerors are great, and he is the greatest of them. Deliverers are great, and he is the greatest of them. Liberators are great, and he is the greatest of them. Saviors are great, and he is the greatest of them. For he is great to the perfection of his nature. Jesus is great to the grandeur of his office. Jesus is great to the splendor of his achievements. Jesus is great in the numbers of his rescues. And Jesus is great in the estimation of his people. For there is no one greater than our Savior, Jesus Christ. So when we read these words given by the angel, he is great, let us understand that he is the greatest of all. When speaking of the Son of the Most High, God is saying that he is my Son. When people understand that he is the Son of God, they make the mistake in understanding Son as we understand Son rather than the way the Jewish culture understood the word Son. The Son of the Most High meant that not only was He the Son of God, but He Himself is God. Some believe that Jesus is simply the Son of God, a God in uh, processions of God, uh, but yet Jesus is the same as God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. By saying He is the Son of God, He is saying that He is of all authority with God the Father. And Mary would have understood that by the term in which the angel used. And this term is again used to state equality with God. Promising that he, that is Jesus, would be the fulfillment. That the throne of David would be fulfilled. And the promise made to David would be kept. And one would reign from that throne for all eternity. The psalmist wrote, and I believe this was David himself. Excuse me. He says, you have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And he will reign over the nation of Israel for all eternity. 
we hold to the position that this will begin when he fulfills his second coming and then sets up in Revelation chapter 20 the millennial kingdom. At this point, he will then reign physically from Jerusalem, keeping and fulfilling all the promises of the land made to Israel in the Old Testament, and secondly, fulfilling the promise of reigning from Jerusalem physically for all eternity. These will be kept and begin at the millennial kingdom, and it'll start at that point. Now, the kingdom of God has begun in the sense that the inauguration of it had begun in his first coming, that the kingdom is being collected, a kingdom is being gathered, and the kingdom will climax at the time of his second coming. And all of this will take place through this child, Mary, the child that you have within you. Let's read it again from verse 32. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And on his kingdom there will be no end. How shall Mary respond to such wondrous things? Look at what she says in verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? Language is everything. When she is speaking in the Greek, it is specifically, How this be? She is not questioning or doubting these things. Or she is not doubting the possibilities of these things taking place. Mary is completely believing that God can do whatever God desires to do. And she is simply asking the question, how will God do such a thing? How do you know that, Eric? How do you know that she's not doubting? And how do you know she's not believing? Because the angel answers her question and talks about the answer favorably to her. This is determining the interpretation of this question by the exegetical evidence that is found in the text. Again, if we just had verse 34 alone by itself, you could probably go either way, doubting or believing. But if she is basically saying, how will God do this since I am a virgin? Well, here's a substantiation to that conclusion. Verse 35. And the angel answered her, here's how it's going to take place. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This is how it's going to happen, Mary. The Holy Spirit coming upon her is simply the word epi in the Greek. It means he filled her in the sense that he just came upon her, in the sense that God laid the Spirit upon her. There wasn't any kind of intimacy. This wasn't any kind of act of um, some type of spiritual, um, uh, you know, uh, physical uh, intimacy. It is just simply that the Spirit just touched her, just gently. And then he uses the word overshadow there, which I find very interesting. Now, for us as Gentiles, we need to know what this means. 
This word is not used anywhere else except in the Old Testament in the, in the book called the Subtuagent, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. And it talks about the coming of the glory of God in the Shekinah of glory. The Shekinah glory was the glory that set upon the temple there in Israel in the Old Testament. And it showed and demonstrated and proved that God was there amongst him. And he is simply saying that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you in a very gentle way. And you're going to conceive a child as he overshadows with the might and the power of God. Simply as just God proved his presence at that moment when the, when the Shekinah glory came down upon the temple. Mary, this is the manner in which you shall conceive. This is what God shall do. And therefore the child to be born will be called holy. The Son of God. In verse 36, and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Not only that, but we have given the forerunner, John, who came through the physical intimacy of Zechariah and Elizabeth, this unique conception was not uh, equaled or paralleled in John's conception. But why? Why was it necessary? Why was this virgin conception, let's be more specific than a virgin birth, virgin conception would be more accurate. Why was this necessary? It was necessary because after the fall of man, each and every person born in, in the line of Adam, that means everyone born after Adam, was born with a sin nature. Paul makes it clear through Romans that the sin nature is handed down through Adam and through every physical male individual who has a sin nature, gives that sin nature to their children by uh, the um, conception between husband and wife and so forth. So therefore, for Jesus to be perfect and to be God, he needed to come not through the line of Adam, but from God himself. Skipping altogether the line that had been tainted by sin and, of course, death. The virgin conception or virgin birth is an essential doctrine to Christianity. It is something that must be believed and agreed upon If we believe that Jesus came in any other manner, then Jesus was incapable of paying for the sins of the world. Because it was through this conception that he became 100% man and 100% God all at one time. And God needed an individual that had never been touched by human hands, though he did wait for her to be betrothed. He did so to protect her. He knew that this was going to be radical in that society. And though she was placed in a danger, he also used this position of what could be vulnerability to protect her because he knew that after visiting um, Joseph, Joseph would protect her from that which is to come and of course take her into Egypt and to Bethlehem and so forth. Incredible. God's provision in every case for the coming of the Messiah. 
And then, of course, then the angel informs Mary of Elizabeth's conception and the fact that she's already in the sixth month of her pregnancy. And then the angel reminds us of a truth that we carry away with us this morning. Verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. And look at how Mary responded in verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. What humility and grace on the part of Mary. Approached by Gabriel at this age. Oh, and by the way, you're now going to be pregnant. Oh, really? Oh, and by the way, your child's name is going to be Jesus. Oh, good. Oh, and by the way, he's going to be the Son of God. Great. And through him, all the promised fulfillments of the Old Testament will be fulfilled. Wonderful. And she just graciously accepts this. I just I, I look at that and I and I and I see her and I just see her grace and her and her the beauty of that and the and, and the um, compassion of that and and her tender heart towards Jesus through his life and ministry incredible act of wonder and miracle that Luke brings to our attention and that's why Luke is doing what he is doing. As a physician, he wants everyone to know that the conception of Jesus Christ was supernatural. It was beyond human means. Of course, Luke, being a doctor, had delivered uh, a countless number of children, uh, though a midwife was more specifically for that task in that culture. Luke undoubtedly knew as a doctor how to deliver a child, how to watch after one who was pregnant, especially in the family in which he resided, And he is letting us know, he wants us to know this fact, that Jesus' conception was supernatural and it came directly from the Father through the Spirit of God. And that is why we as Christians can be certain that Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross was accepted by God and that accepting of that sacrifice was substantiated by God and the third day he rose again. This is why he could be sinless and perfect and God in human form. The body was given by Mary and the nature was given by God the Father to one. When the angel talks about the impossibility that God is able to overcome, the next time the word is used in Luke's gospel talking about an impossibility, it talks about a rich young ruler who came to Jesus wanting to know that he had eternal life. And Jesus spoke to him and said, well, listen, you know, first keep everything that you have learned as a Jew and keep the law and, you know, you shall have eternal life. And he says, well, I've done that from the beginning of my life. I've kept the law since I was a child. And then Jesus turned to him and said, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. And the young man, the rich young ruler, could not do that because he valued his possessions too much to, to give them away in such fashion. It was his identity. when It was his 
substantiation that he was blessed of God. When the disciples saw that this man who was apparently blessed by God because he had this physical wealth, this determination was made on an understanding of the covenant made in Deuteronomy 28 where God says, I will bless those who uh, keep my commandments and I will curse those who do not. He was talking about a national blessing and cursing, but they applied it to individuals. But when he walked away sorrowful and when he turned from salvation and did not receive the invitation in which Jesus had made to him, the disciples started to question and say, well, how is it possible that anyone is saved then? And Jesus said, using the same word here, with man it's impossible, but with God it's all things are possible. The impossibility that God was breaching not, wasn't the simple conception of Jesus through the Holy Spirit overshadowing her with the might and power of God. The impossibility that God was beginning to breach was the impossibility of saving his fallen creation. And the only way he could do that is by he himself coming and offering himself as a sacrifice. In place of that sacrifice that Abraham was about to give of Isaac there on Mount Calvary, Mount Golgotha, I believe it's the same one that Jesus was crucified upon. And as God stopped Abraham and said, no, I will provide myself a sacrifice. He was talking about it in this manner. I will become the sacrifice. I'm going to breach the impossibility. I'm going to save fallen mankind through my son, Jesus Christ. That's the impossibility. The impossibility reached beyond just the physical conception of a child. Is that really difficult for God to do? But what God's going to do through that child is not only going to raise a king for all eternity, but a savior of the world. That's what Christmas means. So when we read this together and we conclude together, for nothing will be impossible with God. Let us remember these words spoken by our Savior himself. For I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Let us remember those words each and every time we consider this Christmas season that God gave us a Savior and breached the impossibility. We could not save ourselves, so God reached down from heaven and saved us through Christ.